The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Alliance Media. You have Pudi and P. Nate in Garage Mahal coming to you one more time with uh, episode number two of the Truth Apocalypse series. So we got lots of great stuff to get to today. Um, but how are you doing today, man? I'm, do- I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I, I have to right away ask you because now that you're on live, I sent you a test this week. <laughs> yes, you did. The yeah. hashtag how woke are you test? Yeah, so this is from this is from the Babylon Bee, right? Yeah. So I did take get? the test, and after the test, all it said is, "Um, Donald Trump, is that you? <laughs> You're not woke at all." That's what I got. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, I'm not woke. I didn't even know what that was. I thought I thought you were having like a seizure or something. I didn't know what it meant. How woke are you? Oh, man. And then I looked this up. Hashtag woke. So let me try to explain it back to you because you taught me about this this week. So I looked it up. So. If hashtag woke means that I have awoken to the idea that as a white male, I am guilty about everything and I'm the main reason for all the problems in the world. Women are oppressed because of me. I make more money than them. They make 77 cents on the dollar. I'm awful. So I need to wake up to the fact that I'm part of the problem and that my white privilege and male privilege does not allow me to have a a, a legitimate voice about anything. Yeah, correct? You, ba- you basically nailed it. <laughs> so You're, that's that's literally need, what this thing is. Yeah. So are people actually calling themselves woke like proudly? Yeah, it's a, one of those things where, where you're like as a, as a as a dude now, you get like you're on their side if you say you're woke. You know, I, I've I, I'm a, I'm woke to this whole thing. So Justin Trudeau is woke. Oh, he's like he's probably got a tattooed on his butt. Like I don't know if that's <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like oh. Yeah. I hate I hate everything about what you just said. My I did I did send that test to one other person, and he got you're a fundamentalist. So I was like, <laughs> oh, nice. that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so, so what's that. worse, a fundamentalist or I have no Donald idea. Trump? They, I don't, they yeah. don't show the answers. I just <laughs> okay. know that that's what he got. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, oh anyway. man, it's so so like, and the test questions was like, what happens when you see this? And like, so many of the answers are like crying and screaming into the sky, and like, so I, I get the idea that this is if I want to be woke. I just have to take up every feminist like talking point and get angry when things don't go my way. That's that's according to the test. That is correct. <laughs> like I, w- I was so afraid it was going to say you're liberal, and then I'd have to like come to the Bria Media Network and be like, guys, apparently I'm is, a liberal. Yeah. Is there is there discipline in order? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking uh-huh. of the Bria Media Network, yes, we are proud members. Yes, yes, we of can't, the Bria, we can't Bria forget Bria that. Media Network. 
along with a whole bunch of other podcasts that you can all find on the www.bereanmedianetwork.com website. But we don't have time to go into that today. No, 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 because we have a great guest, and we do want to get to a little bit of Rebel News. So you had something that you wanted to touch on. Yeah, yeah. I Not just being hashtag woke. Not just hashtag woke. That was more of a joke. Um, I, I found this just unbelievable that this is happening. So Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods in the United States have decided that they're going to restrict gun sales to anyone under the age basically of 21 because they're going to do what Congress hasn't done. So I'm, I don't want to go into the gun debate. We don't have time for that. We've done that. Um, we'll probably do it again many a times. What blows my mind about this is, one, one they're half in. So we're still going to sell guns and try to make all the money yeah. because we're capitalists. Right. But we're only going to do it once they're 21. Yeah. Once which, they can buy beer too, which, which so blows my mind that you can get then guns they buy a six pack and a gun and then go have fun. For the, so yeah. the first time they get drinking, they can also have a yeah. fa- firearm. Awesome. Okay, that's fine. But they they took the half measure of saying instead of saying we're just going to cut our funding to gun supporting right. politicians, like no no we're not going to actually do that no. because that would be real change. What we're going to do is we're just going to make it appear like we're doing something. Yeah yeah. And this and this bothers me not because it doesn't actually bother me that, that, that they're doing it. It bothers me because. Now, not only has the church have have we lost the authority in the church to to govern these things, like to I think speak we should to cultural issues. Yeah, the government's not doing that now. Corporate America is going to say, "No, no, guys, we're going to police we your got morals this. now. We got we this. We are going to do this." Yeah. This blows my mind. Well, this is scary. Yeah. So it's a couple things. Number one, anytime Walmart thinks it's a moral authority on anything is scary, right? So that's scary enough. Like you said, I mean. This is this is such a such a like political move, and I mean that like just like this is a PR move, 100%. plain and simple, right? This is just everybody's everybody's talking about guns. We're going to do something, like you said. You know, your government has failed you, the church has failed you, but you know we're coming in as your salvation, right? Like we're going to do this, but really, like you said, they're not actually getting out of the gun business. They're not actually getting out of, you know, Dick's Sporting Good is, is still, you know, they're, they're not actually doing anything. They're, they're making some minor restrictions. I heard that Dick's Sporting Good was also not going to sell assault rifles, which everybody, like all the liberal media and mainstream media and, and it, idiots on social media were all over like, that's amazing. They, people don't understand that, like they hear assault rifle and they think like automatic weapon. They think like, the you know, the Rambo gun where the bullets are like hanging out of the gun, like a Gatling gun. That's, that's what the people picture. An assault rifle is just the same weapon as a hunting rifle it's made to look like a military weapon it's made to look that way it doesn't f- fully automatic weapons have always been or they're still illegal you know it's it's still you fire you know pull the trigger one time and a bullet comes out that's semi-automatic weapon but the term semi-automatic and the term assault rifle are so scary to people so they haven't done a whole lot they've just placated to the crowd they 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 they've just you know made a platitude they've just you know this is this is us we're with you we're hashtag woke yeah that's what they're that's what they're that's what they're essentially saying is there, is there a gun control hashtag i don't know i'm gonna find one i'm sure there Twitter. is i think there's like gun control now and, and stuff but okay i have i have another uh, one and this is more. actually going to transition into our special guest today as well so um this is a, a bit of canadian news but uh, i imagine that some of our friends to the states and and certainly some of our uh, listeners in the uk uh would be able to so 
um, this is no joke. The Presbyterian Church of Canada leadership, they set up a commission last year called the Rainbow Communion with the intent of researching um, the, the idea of uh, making an official public apology to the LGBT community for the sins of homophobia. So this, so now, just um, this was literally this week. So on recording, this was this week. Um, the uh, Presbyterian Church of Canada has issued a public two-page apology to the LGBT community. Um, what they've so this is a two-page document, but I'll just walk you through some of the highlights now. Um, they have um, repented of the. Um, uh, they've, they're repenting of um, the way in which the church has responded to the LGBT movement. They are confessing their sins of creating a homophobic environment, quote, and, and a, quote, unsafe place for people to name their sexual identity and orientation. Uh, they go on to say that um, the Presbyterian Church of Canada and many of its members are guilty of, quote, hateful acts and bullying and violence, which occurs in congregations or in the community with support of many church members, end quote. They go on to say that uh, the church has shuns people, has shunned people who are not heterosexual, um, and they go on. So the, the term repent, apologize, the, sorry, the term repent occurs 11 times in the two-page document. Apologize occurs nine times in the document, and the name Jesus occurs once in the document. <laughs> and that's at the very end when they say, by God's grace, led by the Holy Spirit, and seeking to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, we repent for our sin of fostering homophobia, and we desire to go in a new way. That's how the letter ends. So this is the Presbyterian Church of Canada who is um, bending the knee, not to King Jesus, but to the LGBT movement, and, uh, and essentially repenting of all, all the ways in which they've been faithful to God's word in decades past. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that there have been Christians and have been churches who have been guilty of um, you know, uh, being overly zealous in their hate for uh, uh homosexuals and i'm sure that that condemning the sin and um not showing love and kindness to the individual those two things i i'm sure that there's been some confusion and we've done some things wrong but this letter is just full of repentance not not just for how they've treated people but essentially for the stance that they've taken and um it it's just it's brutal to me to watch another um denomination in our country cave on this issue yeah, I, I think I, I think the thing that scares me the most is is what you said when you read out how many times they said each word. We're repenting, as you said, for trying. They're repenting, I should say, rather for trying to live before having lived biblically in this area. They're repenting also for the way they treated Peter. I don't actually have a problem with them repenting for how they've treated people, but the fact that Jesus's name is mentioned one time and that shows to me that they've they've lost him as the center of the issues. Yeah. They've, he's no longer the one guiding this. It's now about, well, culture feels this way. So therefore I'm going to yeah, that's react. Exactly right. 
and I'm going to judge how I read the word of God based on how my culture is feeling around the time. And that's, that's scary. It is scary. And so, and and that's a perfect segue into, um, our, our guest for today. Uh, our guest for today is pastor Tim Bailey, who recently wrote a book called grace of shame. We're going to be back right after the break and talk to him. The tagline for his book is, uh, the, the seven ways that the church has failed to love homosexuals. And, uh, he has some ideas on what love really looks like to the gay community. So we'll be back right after this to talk to Tim Bailey and get his thoughts on this and, uh, and many different ideas on, uh, on, uh, human sexuality. So for this commercial, let's just try to think of some really catchy slogans that like get our listeners into what we're all about. Okay. Okay. I'll start. Yeah. Okay. I'll start. Toothies podcast melts in your mouth, not in your hand. Let's let's think, keep going. Think of one. How about Toothies podcast? They're great. <laughs> okay. No. Toothies podcast. Pleasing people the world over. Okay, I, I ruined that one. Definitely don't do that. There's, that doesn't fit us at all. Toothies Podcast. The few, the proud, the Toothies Podcast. Okay, let's get let's get serious. Toothies Podcast. Two men seeking God's truth, one sip at a time. I like that. Where have I heard that before? I don't know. It's, it's good though. It's unique. Toothies Podcast. Extolling God's mercies examining scripture and looking through the lens of a Christian worldview rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks guys. We are here with uh, Pastor Tim Bailey. Pastor Bailey is uh, married to his wife, Mary Lee. They have five children and over 20 grandchildren. Uh, He's the author of several books, including Daddy Tired, Overcoming the Failures of Fatherhood, and the book we'll be discussing today, The Grace of Shame. He has his BA from the University of Wisconsin, his MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and has served as the pastor at Clear Note Church in Bloomington since 1996. Is all that right, Tim? It's all right, except one thing. What's that? You did a Freudian slip. You said daddy tired, and it's actually... Daddy tried, my... (laughs) (laughs) I think it's kind of funny for a young dad to to make that. (laughs) It is, absolutely. I have uh, have two under two right now, and uh, and hopefully I I fill my quiver more, but tired definitely describes my life right now. So we've been kind of at the Rebel Alliance podcast, we've been kind of uh, walking through uh, what we're kind of calling the truth apocalypse, uh, this battle against the truth of Christ that we see in the culture around us. And particularly, we're trying to talk about how in so many ways, the, uh, the culture is the litmus test of the church. And so where we see culture corroding, it's where the church has failed. And oftentimes the church has failed to believe the truth of scripture and is bought into the lies that we see in the culture around us. And so that's kind of the big idea that I want to approach your book with today. So your book is called The Grace of Shame, uh, Seven Ways That the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. And in a lot of ways, it's a cry for the truth of the word to be brought back into the battle over who gets to define human sexuality. Is that a fair kind of big picture, Tim? It's a very good big picture, yes. And I like your emphasis that the culture is because of the church. We so often try to uh, absolve ourselves of the guilt of the condition of the culture by acting as if the church is being persecuted by the culture. And and there is that going on, especially in Canada. And it's been going on for a long time in Canada. 
and is increasingly the case in the United States. And so there is a, a symbiotic relationship, but I cannot emphasize strongly enough that, especially in the case of Canada and the United States, the culture is precisely the fruit of the preaching of Christian pastors. The culture, not the church, the culture. Absolutely. Just this morning, I, I was discussing something on Facebook, which is always, you know, a really productive place to get into uh, meaningful conversation. But, uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel was up preaching another sermon at the Oscars and uh, and decrying um, all the sexual misconduct that he's seeing in the culture around him. And uh, and, you know, I, I kind of wanted to make a make a point about the you know the irony of hollywood being the ones to stand up on in their pulpit and uh and condemn sexual misconduct and i had this moment of realization that you know sexual misconduct was happening in our churches and in our pulpits a long time before it was happening in in hollywood and so we need to lead the way in repentance first I guess my first question would be about the uh, the definition of the word love. So the subtitle of your book is how the church is uh, seven ways that the church has failed to love homosexuals. So let's start here with this definition of love. Um, how would you say, uh, Tim, the church has failed to uphold a biblical definition of love? Well, you can talk about the love of two human beings for each other. And I intentionally say human beings because that's what's at issue. Is it a gender-neutered concept that God made one for the other and that whichever fits together best, that body parts aren't the only thing to think about? Personalities, tastes, other things come into play. God ordained love to be essentially heterosexual when it comes to the union of two people. So that's one way. But I think the thing you're, you're probably wanting me to at least touch on is that Ever since John Lennon came out with love, 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 all you need is love, all you need, love, 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 love. There's been this concept of love that's entirely sentimental, cotton candy-ish, where the person that's viewed as loving is the person who's weakest and most sentimental and most emotional and most gushy and most trite and most facile of tongue, just shy of ennui. And that's not love because the definition of love is God and Jesus Christ is God among us. And Jesus Christ, there was nothing sentimental whatsoever about him, nothing. And no one loved better than he did. And he loved as a man. He loved in the way he confronted the Pharisees. Maybe he was at his greatest love when he confronted the Pharisees and and took the whip to the temple. The reason is that his love has the end goal of the judgment seat of God. And that's what we never include in our love today. We always think that love should just be about the here and now. And if the father ever loves his children properly, if he's not loving them in view of the judgment seat of God in heaven and hell. In a culture that would say love never condemns, love never corrects, love never rebukes, it just flies in the face of, of what we see in the person of Jesus constantly. Every chapter of the Gospels, confronting, rebuking, correcting, and all motivated by love. I mean, how, how does a man not sin 
and always act in love and call a group of people a brood of vipers or whitewashed sepulchers. How does that happen? It only happens in, in the person of Jesus. That's the model that he's showing to us because love is bigger than, than acceptance and tolerance and non-confrontational. People might want to say about those confrontations with Jesus that really he was the enemy of the Pharisees. And so it makes sense to do that. And then we need to push them to that moment when Peter, we have that plaintive, if I can say it without being sacrilegious or blasphemous, that maybe one of the supreme moments of Jesus' weakness, where Jesus said, are you two going to leave me? And Peter says, Lord, to whom else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Precious, precious moment between Jesus and Peter. And yet it was Peter that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Unbelievable confrontation. He just got done saying he's going to build the church on the rock of Peter's confession. And it's not accidental, it's Peter's confession. And then his confrontation on the shoreline after his resurrection where he says, you know, Peter, do you love me? And, you know, we read that and it's, we think of it as sentimentally. But, man, that was an in, intense confrontation because Peter had denied him. And so Jesus was very firm. I tell pastors all the time, don't lead your church through compliant women. Go for your men. But, of course, I know that pastors often won't go for their men. And the reason is, if you rebuke a man, he will either kill you or he will love you. Most of us would rather not die than be loved. You know what I'm saying? And yet you know you absolutely know, Nathaniel, that there's nobody you love more than an older man that rebukes you and corrects you and teaches you. So it's like, why does the church not love homosexuals? Why would we think homosexuals are incapable of having real love from a man? Because we've bought into the world's definition of love. Your book here is structured uh, and kind of moves through these seven ways that, uh, that you've identified that the church has failed to love homosexuals. And uh, we want our, our listeners, we want to encourage our listeners to read this book and buy this book. Uh, so we won't go through all seven to leave some level of suspense. But I think um, we could really frame these seven things as seven lies that the church has bought into uh, that's caused us to fail to love homosexuals. And so I just want to touch on a few of them. And I want to start here because um, you and I kind of started our conversation before we started recording on, um, on the word malakoi. And so I guess the first lie would be almost a lie of scholarship, if I can say it that way, where uh, we've actually had our Bibles mistranslated. Do you want to talk just a little bit about Malachi and walk us through why it doesn't appear in our English Bibles in, in 1 Corinthians 6? We like to think that a dictionary is a dictionary is a dictionary is a dictionary, but it's not. A dictionary chronicles the changing usage of words. And sometimes I will have arguments with dictionaries where I don't think that they have kept pace with the pejorative use of a word that they're still back in the day when it didn't have the pejorative content, the negative content that it has when it's used today. And there are a lot of words that I could talk about in that regard. But when I was first in the ministry, I read a lot of Puritans, which I know you're spending a lot of time reading them. And I noticed that it was frequent with the Reformers, Calvin, Luther, with the Puritans, for them to use a word that shocked me when I began to read it. And the word was effeminate. 
And I thought, now that's an interesting word because it was dead. It was utterly dead. Nobody ever, ever, ever used the word effeminate anymore. So I've spent my whole life keeping track of any time I hear that word, right? And I just never hear it. But the old guys use that word in very specific way. I'm talking about the last 500 years through the Reformation. The way they use that word over and over again is to refer to men who are typically scholars, academics, uh, Calvin Sorbonnes, you know, at the Sorbonne. These are men who live in the plausible deniability space of fancy footwork with vocabulary and words in such a way as to act as if they don't see the error they're dealing with and don't think it's worth killing. So you'll have a theological controversy. It will grow because that's what they do. They they begin to take over the church. And there are some men that will use their learning as a way of escaping having to take a position. And so I don't know if you know anything about boxing, but they used to say about Cassius Clay and then Muhammad Ali changed his name. He used to say that he, he floated like a butterfly and he stung like a bee. And this is the definition of a theologian or a pastor who will not man up and expose the wolf. He is effeminate. He is a man who doesn't have the firmness of his sex. Now, this gets a little dicey, okay? There's no way today that I can't make reference to body parts. We are called by God to reflect in our lives, in our pastoring, in our preaching, the obedience to the body parts that God gave us when in the womb he marked us as male or female. And if we think about our body parts as men, they're obvious to us. And they are body parts that take initiative and that are firm. Okay. That's the essence of masculinity. And so God has made us to protect. God has made us to bear responsibilities, made us to take initiative. And so the reformers and the Puritans would use this word to refer to men who refused to protect the sheep, refused to guard the good deposit. They were effeminate, and typically they were highly educated. Now, if you go back in Bible translations, you find that there's a Greek word that is used by Jesus when John the Baptist is under attack, and it's also used by the Apostle Paul on his sin list in 1 Corinthians 6. It is a sin, and it's the sin of a man being malakoi. And what English Bibles always translated, including J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase, okay, of the New Testament, they always translate it with something approximating effeminate, and usually effeminate. But if you come to the Bibles today, not the NASB, which is the version I use, but what most Reformed men today use is the ESV. And in the ESV, they've kicked that word out of the Bible. And instead, they have taken that word and the word that immediately follows it in the sinless, which is the Greek word arsenikoite, and they have compressed them in such a way as to shapeshift and to make people think that the only thing that's being condemned there is homosexual intercourse. And it's a lie. Because being effeminate is something that it's characteristic of the receptor in homosexual intercourse, the one getting buggered, okay? But it is not the limitation of that word at all. And if you go back 
and you read the uses of that word in the primary sources in in the ancient world, it's used hundreds and, and I'm I don't know maybe thousands of times. And what it means is men who are soft. That's the literal meaning, soft men. Okay. And so what Paul is saying is neither soft men, and then he uses a word that is almost never anywhere in the ancient world in any of the primary sources. In fact, it used to be argued that it was a coinage by the Apostle Paul from the Septuagint, from the Greek version of the Old Testament. That word is senakoite, and it does actually mean men who lie with males. And so what Paul is saying is people that are unfaithful to their sex by being soft and people who are unfaithful to their sex by lying with males. But it's gone. You know, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, okay, now why is this gone from the Bible? And then it hit me. I want that word gone from the Bible. I want it gone from the Bible. And then it hit me. Why do I want it gone from the Bible? Because I am a soft man. I mean, I am a soft man, you know. And I then realized that it's not just that we hire pastors who will scratch our ears. We have Bible products written to scratch our ears. And so, I mean, this is, you know, for anybody, any of our listeners who haven't read this book, and maybe this is the first time they're hearing this, this this is like, I mean, we know the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus kind of points to adultery and he says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And almost as if to strip us bare, right? He says, now it's not just, I'm paraphrasing Jesus here, but it's not just the act of adultery that is sinful, but anyone who has lust in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. And and most of us as men would wish that would be out of the Bible as well, because we know how often that makes us adulterers by Jesus' standards. And so what you're essentially saying is that this is the sin of effeminacy, which um, starts in the heart a long time before it ever plays itself out into homosexual intercourse, is a sin that's essentially not only not in our Bible translations anymore, but just not being preached from the pulpits. We're not being called on this, and we're happy that we're not, but we're not. Yeah, because if there's anything that any woman alive today will complain about, it's that she can't find a hard man. And what she means by that is she can't find a man that she could even dream of respecting. And it's because men today are cowards. We're vain. We play video games. Any conflict in our life is only vicarious through the NFL or hockey. You know, certainly not curling. I don't know how you come up with any way of seeing curling is conflictual. Maybe the conflict of the bristles of the brooms with the ice, you know. We keep hockey uh, close to our hearts, though, so that we have at least one tough sport up here. <laughs> well, it is. It is a tough sport. I never forget the first time I went to an ice hockey game, and it was like, oh, whoa. I love it. Yeah. But, you know, in the Western world today, we are, we are soft. We are very soft. And, you know, you talk about the issue of adultery. It's a perfect analogy that everybody wants to escape into sacramentalism so they can forget their hearts. Everybody wants to escape into not actually having intercourse with somebody other than your wife so that they can ride over the seventh commandment. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to sodomy and to lesbianism, to to homosexuality, to bisexuality. We think that if we don't use our body parts wrongly, 
that we're clean, but God wants the inside of the cup. And if the inside of our hearts is are cowardly and weak and vain and narcissistic and lazy, those are serious sins. And I, I'm preaching through Romans finally. At 64, I've started. And I just finished Romans 1, and I've just started Romans 2. And, you know, when you read through what God says about giving us over to degrading passions, and he's talking about homosexuality. And he's, by the way, he's not talking about homosexual intercourse there. It's passions. It's the gay Christian movement. It's the whole livingout.org thing. You know, they want to have their passions, but just not act on them. And that's always the way of the Pharisee. The Pharisee is always interested on selling the exterior of his cup, whitewashing the tomb, when inside it's filled with dead men's bones. And no, God is not content. And at the end of my sermon, on at the end of Romans 1, I said, look, the end result of this is that all of us must confess that we are all homosexual. And the reason is that every single one of us in some major way is a rebel against the sex God made us. A woman who is a rebel against her husband's authority is homosexual because she's eviscerating her heterosexual marriage of the sexual distinction and complementarity that God commanded it to have. And a man who will not provide for his home is a homosexual. And what we have done as a church is we have taught homosexuality for 30 to 40 years now in the church because we have removed the teaching of male authority and female submission. We still make a show of having it in the pulpit in the elders' room, but we have obliterated every possible place we can and downplayed it. And guess what? When you won't teach your sons that they are the head of their home and their daughters that they are to be a helpmate, if they end up having sex with the same sex, being lesbians and gays, who do we have to blame? Nobody but the church. You kind of touched on this, and this is another one of the, the chapters in your book, another one of the, the lies that we've kind of bought into, and that is the you call it the sin of sexual orientation. There have been teachers, prominent teachers, who have been influential to, to my ministry, like men like Tim Keller and, and uh, Al Mohler, who have taught now that we ought to read the Bible through the lens of sexual orientation. And Tim Keller uh, described sexual orientation as something, quote, deeply embedded and deeply important. You respond to this in your book, but can you talk about that a little bit and how the church has bought into this lie? Yeah, the minute, the minute we perfectly imbibe of the decadence of our culture, we end up rejecting what is termed binary thinking. It's a very pejorative construction. And when we reject binary thinking, then we're always engaging in what is called the modern morbid habit of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal. We're always looking for the exception to the rule. And if anybody ever talks about the rule, we shut them up. And so what's happened about sexuality is that everybody's trying to find a place to live where they can feel as least guilty as possible. And so if you say to them, no, you need to be obedient to your sex and there are certain characteristics of being a man, certain of being a woman that you need to be obedient to, what they always do is they trot out the issue of, well, are you telling me that as a man I can't like poetry? And it's like, no, King David was a real man and he wrote poetry. You know, are you telling me I can't play a flute? 
no, David played a harp, you know, and, and all this crap comes out. It's like, I'm not confirmed by you, you know, what if I do like lavender? And it's just stupid. It's utterly inane. It's asinine. And so what you do is you come back to them and you say, look, if God says that soft men will not inherit the kingdom of God, and you end up just lampooning God for saying that and make, mocking him and being sarcastic about it and saying, who's going to tell me what being a man is? Are you saying I have to learn to lift weights if I can't bench press 225? You know, you say, dude, just just shut up and you tell me. I'm not telling you. You tell me. Where is the softness in your life that is rebellion against the sex God made you? But they won't do it. They just won't do it. And so this whole sexual orientation thing is an attempt to let people live in their precious identity wherever they are and just say that it's something they inherited from the, the gene pool, something that they had in the womb. And if you follow Al Mohler's language on it and you follow it precisely, he never has – in what I document in the book, he never stops pointing back to this being at the earliest times of their identity as individuals' childhood, them not, never choosing it, it being hardwired, it being, and I think one of the strongest points in the book is John Calvin, where he talks about that kind of language and shows that we're actually blaming God for our sins. And that's what the language of sexual orientation does. It says, well, I have a precious identity that's, that's unique. And of course, listen, I hate to say it, but Soft manism, the feminacy today, actually is about as boring as anything could be. Almost everybody I see out on, on the campus of IU today is actually a feminine. It's not honest. unique anymore. I mean, honest. Yeah, I mean, you know, where are the firm principles anymore? Where is firmness at all? And so this is the reason we have to be careful with the language of sexual orientation because it splits apart the actual sex that God made us and how we live and think and, and move and have our being. And there's just no way in Christianity to separate flesh from spirit. You can't do that. And so our sexual orientation is our body parts. And it's a command of God, and we're to be obedient to it. And when we start going off into la-la land and talking about how I like poetry, and I love poetry, talk about how I like foods. I love foods. Jean-Pierre Rampal rocks. You know, we go off into all this stuff. What we're doing is we're equivocating and we're making excuses for men who are refusing to repent of being soft. And by the way, I'm not saying foods are soft. I'm not saying poetry is soft. So one of what I would say is one of the most profound truths in the book that uh, quite honestly, I hadn't really consciously brought into my theological understanding of scripture until I read this is one of the things that the title suggests is that as a church, we've done everything we can to take the shame of sin away from how we interact with homosexuals. And, and I think that's true in, in all of our sin. I mean, we're, we're, we've been talking today about equivocating on all our sin, but can you just talk a little bit about the grace of shame and that shame is actually a means of grace that God uses to lead us into repentance? Because I think that was one of the most profound central points of the book that helped me immensely. So, Nate, you know when you preach how, as you're writing your sermon, 
you're learning five minutes before your congregation does what you're about to tell them. And you know how sometimes when you're preaching, in the middle of your sermon, you learn things as you're saying them. You didn't know them. Sometimes you didn't know them even when you said them, but you learned them after you got done saying them. And you know how sometimes if you go back and look at an old sermon, you learn that you never knew the thing that you said in your sermon, right? Okay, now, that's what writing this book was all about. Do you know what an it detector is? I'm leaving out a a part of it, you know. A a nose. I had a nose that everybody was caving on homosexuality in in our post-Burgefell world. Everywhere around us, people were coming out with statements like, well, godliness isn't heterosexuality, and it just stank to high heaven. And I couldn't put my finger on exactly what was wrong with it. And then people came out with the gay Christian movement. We had that woman chaplain at Wheaton, you know, where I grew up, who, you know, was for the sexual minorities, the LGBTQ community, and Phil Riken was the president, and I grew up there in Wheaton where he grew up, and I know him, and it's like, what is going on, you know? Well, when, when the book was coming to an end, all of a sudden, it hit me that the common denominator from all the mistakes that are being made about homosexuality today is that shame is being removed. That is the one thing that they all have in common. All of them are an attempt to make people tempted by softness or with women, hardness, and people who have sex with the same sex, trying to make them all not feel like anybody looks down on them because of that. Now, a couple of things. I've been in Bloomington a long time, but you know from the book that my whole life I've been in homosexual communities, okay? That's where God has had me ministering. Boulder, Colorado, uh, you know, San Diego, Madison, Wisconsin. We had two people, both of whom were gay in our small group in our church in Madison back in 76 when we were married. One closeted, the other not. One a woman, one a man. So as I looked at what had happened in the church over homosexuality, what I noticed was that everybody was trying to make it very easy for people to talk about things that are shameful and that I would talk about them in a way that tried to make them lighter. I would try to lessen the gravity of the sin. Okay? Now, I did that because I was just a typical progressive hippie kind of that's just that's the way I was. You know, I was gay. I was androgynous, had long hair, had a pierced ear in 74. And so I began to look at this. And then I moved to Bloomington. And when I moved to Bloomington, I got to know a man. This man lives an hour out of town. He is a hard man. As a matter of fact, he's too hard. He sins by being harder than he should be especially with his sons, not with his daughter or wife, but with his sons. And he's paying the cost of that now in the life of his sons as adults. But I would listen to him and I would realize that he had something I had lost. And that is that he still had a sense of the shamefulness of homosexuality. Well, I love this man and he's a real godly Christian. But I should tell you something else. He's completely blue collar. He doesn't give a rip what anybody in Bloomington thinks of him. He has to come in here to go to church, but if it weren't for that, he'd never show up here. That's how everybody outside of Bloomington feels about Bloomington, okay? And I had this sense that this guy probably was right, 
even though I wanted to look down on him for being so uncivilized and crusty and so, so blue collar, you know, so mobile home double whitish, you know, so, so physical, chews tobacco. Oh, oh, my. And so year after year, I began to think about this guy. And then it hit me one time. And it began to hit me more and more that this man actually was right and all the rest of us were wrong because he had a knowledge of the fact that Shane was a gay man's best friend. One day we had a man that was a countertenor in our church. You remember that there's a chapter about him in the book near the end. He's an opera singer, right? He was out in New York City as as the backup to, to a lead part at City Opera, not at the Met. And he began to use, uh, well, I, I won't go into the details, but he was crashing and burning morally. And guess who we sent out to New York City to bring him home? We sent Crocodile Dundee. We sent this man. Because why? Well, because this man loved the countertown. And I mean to tell you, there aren't two more unlikely pairs. You know, the way he would talk about homosexuality would make your hair stand on it. Okay, so I'm writing the book. I'm thinking about this. And all of a sudden, I remember this man. And I think, yeah, he's been right all along. And so all of a sudden, I realized that we have lost the doctrine of shame. And I began to talk to Jürgen about it. And I began to talk to Joseph. We all began to talk about it. Jürgen wrote the first draft. All of us taught ourselves about shame as the book was being finished, being written. And I'm going to end with with one other statement about this concept of shame. Once you begin to have eyes to it in Scripture and in the Puritans, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Jesus shamed the woman at the well. Go call your husband. And she goes back and she brags about the fact that he shamed her. She says, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Well, every man in that town knew everything she had ever done. He knew this guy had called her out big time. That's what shaming is. I don't know if you're like me, but you said at the very beginning of the question that it's not just true of homosexuality or adultery or fornication or pornography. It's true of all sin. God has attached shame to sin, and it's a gift. What I've noticed the older I get is I have the weight of my sin on my life. I will let out an exclamation And typically, it happens most frequently in the shower in the morning, is I will remember some sin in my life. I will go, oh, and that's God's kindness. That's God, the spirit of God tuning. Now, I think the older we get, the more alive our conscience becomes. So it's not just a sexual thing, although I will say that I think maybe shame is at its most intense with sexual sin. I do want to be respectful of your time. I don't want to keep you all afternoon, but I I guess I'd love to ask, where do we go from here? So we've identified that the church has failed to love homosexuals because we've taken away the God-given grace of the shame that they ought to feel for their sin. Uh, We've also identified that many of us in the church are guilty of homosexuality, guilty of the effeminacy that Paul or, or, is condemning. Or the butchness, the hardness. Or that's, by, that's the parallel sin of women, which is implied through what is called synecdoche. Synecdoche is an English word that's useful that means that the, the larger is contained in the smaller. So when Paul condemns soft men, 
He's also condemning hard women. And in a world of soft men, all the women will be hard. But go ahead. So my question is, where do we go from here? In a culture where this has infiltrated the church so much, what's the responsibility of churches? And then what's the responsibility of the individual Christians who are waking up to the idea that the sin of softness and the sin of hardness go a lot deeper than physical acts. How do we turn the ship around? Well, I think God has set out a curriculum that's inescapable. And that curriculum is that it is inevitable, even in the pagan Roman Empire, when you know uh, Gibbons in his uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire makes the statement that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were involved in homosexual relationships, okay? Only one of them was exclusively heterosexual, we think. And that's precisely the first 200 years A.D., going back a little bit into the first century B.C. But it's, it's absolutely the time of Christ and the early church and the Apostle Paul. And so we are living in that world when sexual debauchery is everywhere. And it was precisely then that Paul wrote Romans 1. And so the first thing we have to say is we will not hire a pastor who doesn't have faith to speak and to preach for the conscience and conviction of sin the way Paul does in Romans 1. If he will not speak of homosexuality as a degrading passion, not just the the disgusting nature of the copulation, but the passion itself is degrading, if he will not speak of this being something that God gives idolaters over to, because that's repeated. If he won't speak of, the Apostle Paul says, they're women. If he won't speak of lesbians as being the men's women, that's how the Apostle Paul speaks. He says, they're women. Why the possessive? What's that about? possessive they're women you know i don't think any lesbians walking around lesbian couple thinking we're their women no i think they think they're their own women right okay we have to anchor ourselves back to the very text of scripture and realize that the apostle paul was at his most pastoral when he used those constructions if we don't have pastors that have faith again for the inerrancy of scripture for every nuance of scripture every jot and tittle being inspired by God, and are unashamed. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. These truths are the power of God. We can no longer be sycophants under a celebrity culture of the church where the men specialize in mincing and prancing and equivocating. And that's how men climb to the top of the celebrity culture in the church. The man who's most able to equivocate, and there are only one or two men who are famous for for preaching in the church today that I would be willing to listen to. The rest of them I don't give you a plug nickel for. Don't give you a plug nickel for. I know them. Most of them I know personally. They're no worse than I am. But for heaven's sakes, I shouldn't be a celebrity. And we have to be done with this. The only thing that matters in the church today is the shepherd of a flock. Okay, that's it. Conferences don't matter. Books don't matter. Podcasts don't matter. I don't matter. Men matter who in Acts 20, Richard Baxter, the reform pastor, they never stop saying precisely what God wants them to say. They never hesitate. 
they warn and admonish and exhort and encourage and correct and rebuke and they censure and they do it day and night from house to house and they do it with tears. So that's where we need to go. We need to go back to the local church. We need to go back to our families. We need to raise sons who will be pastors like the Apostle Paul with the same intensity of Galatians. And we need to forget about what it means to be a hard man or a soft man, a hard man or a, hard, a soft woman, because that's a derivative truth. What you really want is mothers who will discipline their children so when dad gets home, he doesn't have to start from scratch. You want fathers who will rebuke their sons because they want to be able to die seeing their son take over their responsibility from them. You want pastors who will rebuke the elders because they're cowards at church discipline. You want elders who will rebuke the pastor because he pulled his punch in the pulpit that week. You want Titus two women who will tell women to go home and clean their house and do their laundry. In other words, the curriculum of life that God's ordained, the curriculum of the church. And so as you begin to to reproduce in the church, you have people who are evangelized who come in. They soften the whole church up. They make the church not so selfish like a lot of Reformed churches are where they just have lots of kids and then have chickens and, and collect the eggs and argue about which homeschool curriculum they should have. So, you know, we need to have fruit outside the church. But then we need to have fruit inside the church. We need to have children. And then we need to give our children over to the other elders and pastors to discipline. And we need to submit to the church precisely when it's our children that are being disciplined. So that's where we need to go from here. And that's why we're working on a next book, which is on the church, because the goal of this book is to show not soft men how to be hard, not hard women how to be soft, not homosexuals how to repent. The goal of the book is to show the cowardice of the church in the face of culture and its unwillingness to be faithful witnesses to the culture in this one area. And you could go into abortion, you could go into rebellion. It's the same everywhere. We're always compromising and then trying to hide it and maintain plausible deniability. So we have a lot of arguments intense arguments at presbytery meetings and and congregational meetings with no pulled punches no passive aggressiveness because that's the most disgusting thing in elders meetings is when an elder or a pastor is passive aggressive and won't look at you and say i'm going to punch you and then he punches you it sounds like the simple but profound thing that you're saying is how we write the ship is by christians just being christians which which sounds too simple to be true but Paul and Silas, being Paul and Silas, were accused of turning the world upside down in Acts 17, right? I know a couple of guys who have repented of homosexuality. And both these guys were down in the dregs of homosexuality. And they go to the Gospel Coalition guys and they say, hey, you guys, none of these people ever, ever say anything about what homosexuality actually is. And it's horrible. And you won't let anybody say what homosexual sodomy is. And you need to tell people what it is because it's horrible. And none of these people that are spreading all these nuanced equivocations that, are, that we open up in the book, none of them are willing to give any voice to these men who have really repented of homosexuality, sodomy. 
Instead, they trot out a woman to their conferences and she talks about how she was a lesbian. And, you know, and lesbianism is not sodomy. I hate to tell people, but it, it bears no resemblance to sodomy, mainly because women bear no resemblance to men. So you're really saying that we should all just like live life as Christians. And I'm saying, yeah, except one thing there. Let's live life as male Christians and female Christians. Let's think the radical thought that the first thing that we repent of when we become Christians, every one of us, is our homosexuality. Every one of us. The first place that we begin to be sanctified is in our sexuality. It's such a basic thing. How could we, how could we have missed this? And so immediately when you lead a campus, uh, you know, like a sophomore at college to Christ, what do you do? You, well, you assume that the most foundational thing in his life is his sexuality, and you begin to teach him that he can't look at pornography, right? And everybody's immediately on board with me about that. Yeah, 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 no pornography, pornography, bad, right? But who asks the question, why is this dude using pornography. And then you ask yourself this question, well, I wonder whether this dude actually has ever taken a woman out on a date. And then you find out that no, he actually hasn't ever tried to pursue any woman at all. And then you ask yourself the question, why has this dude never tried to pursue a woman? And then you say, dude, can I ask you a question? Do you have any like uh, sexual identity issues? And he says no, and you probe a little deeper, and he doesn't get angry at you. And the, the answer is clearly no. And then you realize he plays a lot of video games. And then you realize that he pays, what, $35 for his haircuts. And all of a sudden, what you realize is the real issue isn't his use of pornography. The real issue is he is unwilling to bear the responsibility of a woman and children in his life. And so he waxes meat because he can't conceive of actually fornicating. He doesn't have the strength to fornicate. And then you begin to, as a pastor, all right, because that's what you are, right? Then you begin to think to yourself, you know, am I crazy or am I finding myself wishing that this dude would actually go out and find a woman and fornicate? Because at least then he would have the weight of his sex. At least then there would be the hope that this man was actually going to marry and to have children and to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then to give money to the poor and to, and to hold down a job. Now, of course, I don't mean that I do want men that masturbate to go out and fornicate, but you understand my point. My point is that if we are going to have these little areas where we say, now don't look at pornography, and yet we're not looking at why they're looking at pornography. Now, don't you have sex with another man? No use of Craigslist. And yet we don't care whether they're narcissists. We don't care whether they're lazy and cowards. No, 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 no. Listen, Christianity is a, is a religion that believes religiously in the glory of manhood and the glory of womanhood. Because it's what God made us. And if we're so Gnostic. And I've never used that word about this until right now, I don't think. But if we're so Gnostic that we think that it's just, you know, it's just our ethereal 
existential being in front of God as persons, you know, and it's just so stupid. You know, you don't take off your sexuality when you step out of your house on 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 Monday morning. Okay, and the thing that we've taught in the church and I was the executive director of the Council on Biblical Man and Womanhood for four years. And nobody teaches this more than the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You said in your uh, in, in your website you're complimentary. Well, that, they're the ones that invented that term for what Scripture says. But you know something? Everybody in CDMW teaches that the only place that complementarity matters is in the privacy of the Christian home and the church. And if that's what we teach our children, they're all going to be gay. Because what that means is that you just have this parsing of our sexuality where you have to know when to put it on and when to take it off. And so they teach that when you leave your house Monday morning, not until you get back home are you a man. You're just a person. And they never say it like that. But if you ask them to say what is the meaning of women police officers and women guards in prison over men, they'll just deny it means anything. We have to fall in love with the glorious diversity. That's a scary word up here in Canada. (laughs) Yes, but isn't it ironic that Christians are just running as fast as we can to escape anything that will cause us to be able to to be accused of of uh, of binary thinking, you know, dichotomous thinking. No, I think a woman can play with Tonka trucks. I'm sorry, I, I've, I've gone too much into, into making fun. But the reason I make fun of all this is because I am that man, you know? I know this man from the inside because I spent a lot of my life being this man. So you have to forgive me for it. No, no, no. It's actually quite refreshing. You, t- you tell the story of the man in your church who convicted you, but it's refreshing to talk to somebody who is so convinced of God's creating us male and female that he's not afraid to be politically incorrect. We're so afraid, I guess, of the the PC police that uh, we're, we're afraid to, I mean, the Bible is full of sarcasm. And the Bible is full of, I mean, you think about um, the way Isaiah talks about those who carve out idols and then bow down to them. We've been too afraid to use the sharp edges of scripture in in this particular area. If you and I look back on the people that have been most helpful to us, a lot of times it has been them speaking to us sarcastically, and we know they love us. And so the sarcasm embarrasses us, but it doesn't hurt us. It heals us. It's embarrassing, and it heals us. And, and yeah, it, I always tell people about Galatians because I preached through it a couple of years ago. And you go through Galatians, and I don't know how to describe that book other than the Apostle Paul is so fixated. All the arguments and the intimidation, manipulations and flatteries of the Judaizers that in making that his argument in that book, he throws everything, including the kitchen sink. I mean, he is bonkers. And you know he uses sarcasm. Why don't they just cut it all off, right? But the thing that I find most scandalous is not the sarcasm. I think the most scandalous thing is he never stops using ad hominem arguments. He never stops saying these are their perverse motivations in what they're doing with you. They're trying to win disciples for themselves. 
And if there is anything that's politically incorrect today, especially in reform circles, it's in the midst of arguing over theological error, ever pointing out what the preliminary principles of the first book of church order in the Presbyterian Church in this country said, which is truth is in order to goodness, and our Savior's rulers, by their fruit you shall know them, and there's nothing more pernicious than that which says that it is of no consequence what a man believes. And so what it's saying is that false practice and false doctrine are always woven together. And I think you talk about political correctness, and the one thing that no one is allowed to do is ever say that there is a toxic union between, for instance, sexual immorality and deviant doctrine. You try to open that up for people. I'll tell you a little story. In a Presbytery meeting one day, a number of years ago, a man was being called on the carpet for taking exception to the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not murder. He said that he thought that it was acceptable to withdraw the necessary means of the sustaining of life from somebody who was in a persistent vegetative state. And so he used as an example somebody that had an accident and then didn't recover consciousness, was lying in a bed. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that it is a violation of the Sixth Commandment to not give the necessary means of sustaining of life, meaning food, water, things like that. And he said that he thought the catechism was wrong at that point, that it was appropriate to starve and dehydrate somebody to death. We're not talking about somebody who's dying. We're talking about somebody that's living, but to withdraw it because their life is not worth living. Well, what happened was there was a debate on the floor of Presbytery, and on one side were those who said that this was murder and that he should not be approved to be a pastor. On the other side were men who said that there was nothing wrong with what he was saying. What he was saying was absolutely right, and he should be accepted as a pastor. There was a man in our presbytery who was universally respected. He was the elder statesman of the presbytery, and he was vehemently in support of this man's position. Three months later, he went out in the woods and took off his head with a shotgun. Well known across my denomination. Front page of the newspaper had it written up. And you know something? I learned something that day. Truth is an order to goodness. A man is going to argue that it's okay to starve somebody to death because they're in a persistent vegetative state, whatever that is, that man could well commit suicide in a couple months. And so, you know, you talk about the difficulty of going against political correctness, but listen, our real problem isn't what people think of us. Our real problem is what God thinks of us. And the most difficult thing to do is to argue that doctrine and morals always walk hand in hand. And if you really want to be countercultural, you take that one on. You begin to argue ad hominem. You begin to talk about the, the connection between character and doctrine. And of course, that's the reason why it's so scandalous to talk about effeminacy and, and, and butch women, because you're probing the nexus between personality and character and body. And everybody wants to liberate the body from the spirit, you know. So, you know, you say it's freeing and it's, you know, you didn't say it's freeing. You say it's refreshing. And I say, well, 
it may be refreshing to you, but for heaven's sakes, don't you get tired of how boring political correctness is? It's just so utterly boring. Well, Tim, thank you for uh, spending more time with me than I asked you for. So um, thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks for coming on here and uh, talking to us. And thank you for um, the work that you're doing. Thank you for the grace of shame. And you said that you're in the middle of another book. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe talk a little bit about Warhorn Media and where people can get connected to some of the ministry that you're doing? Sure. Uh, We didn't talk about the book Daddy Tried, which I would like to mention because that book took four or five years to write. And I think it's such an encouraging book for dads because it's a book that takes seriously how hard it is to be a good dad. And it takes seriously the fact that every good father is defined by failures that God covers in his grace. And so I'd like to mention the book Daddy Tried. Warhorn Ministries, Warhorn Publications, that has podcasts, it has articles being written, it has podcasts that focus on literature, it has a podcast that focuses on suffering, principally the suffering of women in a number of different areas. There's a ton of good stuff on it that I hope people will check out. My recollection is the address is... Warhornmedia.com. Yeah, warhornmedia.com, yeah. And then, yeah, we're working on a couple of books. We hope to have a book on cremation. I'm in the middle of working on a book on the church, which is really where my heart is. We have another season of a podcast that I'm involved with called The World We Made. You know, I talked to you about how I realize I'm androgynous, that I'm not wearing my sexuality. And the first season of that called The World We Made, I think anybody that's interested in this podcast today should just immediately go and listen to that podcast and then get a copy of the book and read it. But those are the things that we're doing, and and I think they're fully in sympathy and harmony with everything that you would be sympathetic to, Nate, and the Rebel Alliance podcast. So I really appreciate being able to be on with you, and I wish you God's blessing with your church and being a dad. If I can ever serve you in any way, you need need anything that I can give you, let me know. I, I appreciate that very much, Tim. Thank you so much. We just want to thank Pastor Tim Bailey for making time to be on the show. Uh, You can see why we wanted him to come and talk to us about this particular uh, topic. You can buy his book, Grace of Shame, and I would uh, really encourage you to do so, especially if this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. Uh, You can find him at uh, warhornmedia.com. He he blogs there. His books are for sale there. Uh, We would encourage you to follow him and his ministry. He is a gift to the church. And, uh, and we hope that this episode has, uh, has uh, got you excited for the Truth Apocalypse. We have a, a lot of other guests uh, coming on to talk to us. And, uh, and hopefully, similarly, we'll uh, continue to root out some of these lies that we've believed and, uh, and point to the Word of God that sets us free. Yes, I just want to say thank you again to Pastor Bailey. Um, and you can follow us, the Rebels, on Facebook, rebelalliancemedia.com. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and with Facebook, we really appreciate it if you like, share, and comment on our Facebook page, on our episodes. We engage with you right then. We love doing that, but it also really helps get the message out. Facebook does a lot of things with their 
algorithms and all the math that I don't understand, but the more comments, the more likes, the more shares, even if you're just liking it and sharing it on your own page itself, helps us tremendously get the gospel message out and helps people see what we think is the biblical truth in these matters. So appreciate that. And thanks for all listening and engaging with us in every way possible. Thanks for listening.